Ambreen Khan, and this is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Each week, we explore the beliefs that shape our world from our politics to our culture and the way we live and love. In the United States, the idea of interfaith or multi-faith marriage is increasingly mainstream. That is not the case everywhere, especially in India. It's a topic that caught the attention of my guest this week, author and former journalist Trithi Umragar. Honor is her latest book. The story centers two women, Smita and Meena. Smita, an Indian-American journalist, is given an assignment to travel to India, a country she left as a child, to cover the trial of a brutal arson attack targeting a Hindu-Muslim couple. Meena is the survivor of that violence. Widowed and pregnant, she's now demanding justice for her slain Muslim husband, Abdul. Meena's family is Hindu, and they were opposed to the marriage. It was her brother that set the fire. Mina is now turning to Smita to tell and translate her story for American readers. And in the process, Smita discovers she has so much to learn. Honor brings the other India into focus. Outside the cosmopolitan centers of Mumbai and Delhi, we travel to the heart of a nation where communal violence, ethno-nationalism, and religious hatreds are interwoven. While filled with details that are uncomfortable, Honor is also a complicated story about love, identity, agency, faith, and friendship among women. Umargar doesn't shy away from telling stories that are painful. Perhaps it was her 17 years working as a journalist where she developed a keen eye for details, or maybe it was her own story and experience coming of age in India as a Parsi, religious minority known also as Zoroastrians. Umragar witnessed and experienced the dueling hopes and aspirations of a new young India as a member of its first generation born after partition in the mid-20th century. After 300 years of British colonial rule, the British Raj ended its reign, and at the stroke of midnight, August 15, 1947, the subcontinent was divided into two independent nation-states, to the east, Hindu-majority India, and to the west, Muslim-majority Pakistan that included present-day Bangladesh. It was and remains the greatest migration in human history. More than 10 million became displaced. Muslims fled to the west, while millions of Hindus and Sikhs headed in the opposite direction. That legacy is alive in many people today, including my parents who fled to Pakistan and my in-laws who fled to India. Hundreds of thousands never made it. And the legacy of the trauma and violence continues today. In my family, we don't talk about partition. It's too painful. But we do talk about books. And in fact, it was many years ago that my mother-in-law, Kiran, introduced me to the writing of Triti Umragar which is where we start the conversation. Well, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. I have to say, Honor, I, my mother-in-law and her friends are reading it right now. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> she has an Indian book club. They're all primarily yeah. Punjabi. And so when I told her I was interviewing you, she was like, is she in D.C.? Is she in D.C.? Is she coming to D.C.? <laughs> if she comes to D.C., can we all meet her? <laughs> oh, so sweet. She's so sweet. Oh, Please tell her I said a big thank you. I will. I will. I haven't read all of your books, but my mother-in-law has read every single one of them. And wow. 
You know, it was interesting in talking with her and I asked, what keeps her coming back to your writing? And she said, it's like I'm seeing through your eyes. You go back oh. and you bring things. You you see the the dynamics. You see the way relationships unfold. You see the colors and can smell the air. And I just thought that was such a beautiful description. Oh, she's a poet. I mean, and great ability to communicate, you know, that says more about her than it says about me, frankly. I think it says a lot about both of you. It's a gift you have. When did you discover that you had this gift? My earliest memories of myself are of writing. Um, I, I honestly, I don't think I have an earlier memory than of me either you know, scribbling a poem um, and leaving it anonymously uh, in my <laughs> parents' bedroom. You know, if, if they'd done something that I was not pleased with, basically, if they just refused me something, you know, I used to make up a poem and then leave it for them to find, hoping that they wouldn't guess who the author of the poem was. <laughs> that That's a very early childhood memory, very early. Um, but then certainly by the time I was eight or nine, the image that I see of myself throughout my childhood was every single evening, we used to have this beautiful chair on the balcony and the balcony overlooked the western sky. So you could see these glorious sunsets. And, uh, you know, I was always every evening before dinner, I was there on that chair scribbling and writing poetry, um, you know, every evening of my life, just looking out at the sky and writing. I never had any dreams of being a published writer or anything like that, but it was as essential as breathing, you know, it just felt as natural as breathing to write. Mm. When did it become apparent to you that this could be what you do? When did this, this art, this uh, muscle that felt like breathing become the primary way in which you lived as an author, traveling, writing, reflecting, researching? You know, it happened fairly late in life because I took an almost 17-year detour. I knew at a fairly young age as a child in India that there was no path for somebody like me to become a published author. I had no role models as such. I mean, I got a lot of uh, praise for my writing with teachers and things like that in college. Um, I was such a misfit in college in India because I went to business school. And, you know, if ever there was an artsy kid, that was me. And yet I found myself in business school. And as a way of surviving business school, I decided to start writing and starring in and directing plays. And mm. that was sort of my salvation through those years. Um, and, you know, got a lot of accolades for that and that kind of stuff, which was all great. But the thought of actually being a published author was like, you know, you may as well have told me I could be an astronaut. It just <laughs> felt that out of reach, you know. But I did know that I wanted to build a life in words and language. And so I, I became a journalist. And that was that detour of which I just spoke. I knew that I would still be able to write. I would still be able to engage with words. Um, but it, it just felt like a reasonable goal. You know, I knew people who worked for the Times of India, who were journalists. I had some um, something to look 
forward to. But I didn't know anybody who was a poet or a fiction writer. And, you know, um, this is how we form our ambitions, I think, is by having role models. And I didn't have those at that time. Mm. So it was only after years and years of being a reporter for a daily newspaper in the U.S. um, that I finally thought, you know, I'm tired of just telling other people's stories and reporting somebody else's words when I feel like I have so much that I want to say myself. And that's when I wrote my first novel, Bombay Time. Honor is a book that just came out uh, in January of 2022. And I understand it's a book club favorite now uh, for lots of folks, not just my mother-in-law. Um, what's the reception been Given that we are still in the midst of a pandemic and there can't be any, you know, live uh, book talks and appearances and book festivals, I think it's been well received. We've had some initial reviews that have been very strong. There are two things that happened that were wonderful. It was a book club pick by Reese Witherspoon um, for January of 2022. And I think that certainly gave it a boost. Um, and I'm obviously grateful for that. But the thing that I will always remember is the spontaneous outpouring from friends and also from fellow writers uh, who seemed genuinely happy for me. When everything else settles down, those are the things that one values and remembers and cherishes. It was just a fun week, the week that the book came out, because people that I hadn't talked to or heard from in months, sometimes years, everybody came out to wish me well. It sounds like that's very sustaining and important. You know, the birthing of a new of a new book of, you know, a, an endeavor that took quite a bit of time the the process for writing and editing, and then not to be able to go to bookstores and do the readings and engage with, you know, your fans or for folks who might be interested in the topic can be really challenging. I have a friend right now, wonderful writer, Meg Clayton. She has this wonderful new book out that just came out late last fall. And you can buy a copy of it at Amazon. You just don't have copies to sell. And, you know, it's such a dicey business and all the effort in the world and all the revisions and everything that one does to get to the day of publication through forces that you simply cannot control. All your work can be wiped out in a second. I mean, it's it's scary and it's disillusioning. And I've heard stories about other friends who, you know, I had a friend who had a book come out on 9-11. Mm. I mean, talk about lousy timing, yeah, you know. Yeah. So much of what happens to us in life is not within our control, you know, so that when occasionally some pieces fall in place, I think all one can do is look up and say, thank you. When did you move to the United States? Oh, I think it was roughly about a thousand years ago, <laughs> give or take a few. Uh, that's that's what it feels like anyway, most days. You know, um, No, I came to this country in 1983 when I was 21 years old. So anybody who does good math can can figure out, you know, how old I am today. Uh, but yeah, it was it was a long time ago. And uh, I came 
to go to grad school. I came to get a master's in journalism. And, um, you know, my dad owned his own business that he had started uh, when he was a young man. And of course, he had always had dreams of me taking over the family business someday. And um, I had absolutely no head for figures, and it was not something that interested me. So I spent a lot of my teenage years arguing with him about why it would be a disaster if somebody like me ran the show. And I think I finally, finally managed to convince him of that truth and, you know, got his blessings to come to the U.S. to earn a master's in journalism and then one thing led to another, and I got my first job here, and, you know, a thousand years just flew by. <laughs> a thousand years just flew by. That also sounds like the title of a chapter. <laughs> For those who follow a little bit of the, you know, the, the foreign headlines and the rise of Prime Minister Modi and the shift in the politics in the country that may have a recent memory, take us back to what was going on in 1983. What was the country going through at the time? Yeah, so I'll, I'll start a little earlier uh, talking about the decade of the 70s when really I was sort of, you know, coming of age. Um, and, you know, I have to say it was a glorious time to be um, in Bombay. Um, and I can most specifically and honestly talk about the city of Bombay, where I was born and raised, and not so much about the rest of India. Because as you know, it's a very, very large and very complex country. And I'm certainly no authority. No, but no one person is an authority on a country that that huge and diverse. Um, but Bombay in the 1970s was a great place. I mean, just to give you a small example, so I was this Parsi kid, and Parsis are this minuscule, minuscule religious um, community in India. Um, my ancestors came from Persian uh, a thousand years ago to India, basically as what we would today call political refugees, and uh, were welcomed and, you know, rose through the ranks over the centuries, that kind of stuff, and were firmly part of Indian culture, even though they were still allowed um, to to hold on to, you know, some of their um, Persian traditions and customs and that kind of stuff. That was the genius of India, how it could welcome, you know, outsiders from all places and somehow um, Indianize them uh, to, to at least a certain extent. But so I'm this Parsi kid um, growing up in a country and a city that's predominantly Hindu, and I went to Catholic school my whole life. And it wasn't until I came to the U.S. and would share this part of my biography with friends here and see the kind of puzzled look on their faces um, that I realized that there was anything even remotely strange mm -hmm. about this combination. You know, to us, we just grew up as cosmopolitan people of a city that was very secular and tolerant in those days. And it, it just felt like this was the reality of our lives, you know, it didn't feel strange in any way. And again, that I think was the genius of India. And you certainly didn't have the kind of, you know, religious polarization uh, that I think we are unfortunately seeing uh, these days. India was founded as a secular democracy. And I think for much of its history, um, its citizens were really proud of that. We thought that that diversity was really a strength 
And of course, some of those very basic assumptions are being questioned these days by, by certain forces in Indian society. This is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Ambreen Khan. This week, my guest is award-winning and best-selling author, Triti Umragar. Her latest book, Honor, hit bookshelves on January 2022. Before the break, she described living in Mumbai in the 1970s. She was one of the first generations to come of age after the partition in 1947. Let's get back to the conversation. What inspired you to write this story? And if you would, give listeners a little synopsis of what you'll encounter. So many years ago, I came across a series of stories in the New York Times written by the writer Ellen Berry. I believe at that time she was the South Asian correspondent for the Times. And she spent a lot of time in the villages in rural India and did a bunch of really excellent articles on, you know, different aspects of life, one of which really grabbed my attention. And that was a story about women in this particular village deciding to defy the authority of their elders, village elders, and take jobs outside the home. And sort of the consequences of that decision was very interesting reading. There was another story I remember that simply dealt with uh, small town corruption you know, in the police force, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Uh, eye-opening uh, stories. And I remember even when I was reading them thinking, wow, this I, this should be a movie. I mean, this is incredible stuff. This is brilliant work, you know. I certainly didn't think of it at that moment as, oh, this is the inspiration for my next book. But I found over the next couple of years or so that I, I couldn't stop wondering about those women and thinking about their lives and, you know, really admiring and thinking in our societies, we never define valor and courage as these everyday acts of defiance that have the potential to really change things. You know, we always think in terms of military Mm -hmm. and police and, you know, the big uh, grand actions, but not what kind of courage must it take to live in the same village where, People won't speak to you because there's been a kind of edict that they have to ostracize you. You know, how do people not succumb to that kind of peer pressure? Right. So somewhere along the line, I thought, yeah, I think I can write about this. And that gave birth to um, at least one of the two central characters. The first one being Mina, who is this functionally illiterate, poor, uneducated peasant woman living in this small, all-Hindu village. She's Hindu herself. And she defies her brothers, who are the head of the household, twice. One, by accepting a job uh, outside the home. She goes to work for this new factory that has sprung up outside her village. And she incurs the wrath, not just of her brothers, but all the men in the village because of that. And then she sort of doubles down on that, quote-unquote, mistake, by falling in love with a co-worker who also happens to be Muslim. And she marries him. And for that transgression, she pays a very, very heavy price. Mm. Um, and then the other major character is Smita, who is an Indian-American journalist. 
And Smita is everything that Mina is not. She's an independent woman. She lives in Brooklyn. She is a correspondent for a newspaper in New York. Uh, and she is sent to India or arrives in India to cover Mina's story. And we get the sense very early on that even though Smita, you know, was born and lived in India until she was a teenager when she left for the U.S. with her family, she is not happy to be back. And we don't know uh, her reasons for being so fearful and perhaps even disdainful of India, right? So part of the story then becomes, as she tells Mina's story, Smita herself undergoes some changes, and that becomes sort of the central narrative of the book. So I think that, in a nutshell, is what honor is about. It's interesting the way you just put that. As Smith is the storyteller, she is the right. amplifier. It reminded me of just something that I've encountered in conversation with other journalists, and particularly when I've been in conflict zones. Uh-huh. And covering stories of trauma and covering stories in which there are ruptures in the community. How being the storyteller changes you, changes the change it how how does it not and it's how does it not how does it not and i mean i was it reminds me of a conversation i actually had with a reporter here in the united states who embedded herself in a community that is deeply misunderstood that also went through a lot of trauma and she had told me similarly that there's an emotional toll that it takes it was so fascinating for me to read the story of of these two women And Uh I wondered, as you were writing, if you were drawing from any of your own personal experiences, either as a journalist or in doing research for stories, how did your ability to kind of speak to that transformation, where did that come from? Well, the only sort of obvious connection point where I took, I don't even know if the word experience is the right word, but where I took a kind of internal uh, debate that I used to have with myself when I was a reporter and sort of gave that debate to Smita happened when Smita is deep into this village, you know, where life is so different than any kind of journalism she's ever practiced, where she muses out loud about the how relevant it is to adapt sort of the American rules of journalism, which mostly privilege objectivity in reporting as the salient hallmark, if you will, of American journalism, right? That you have to represent both sides of a story uh, equally, you know, almost give equal uh, weight to both sides of a story and that the reporter herself should never get involved, should always stay objective, stay like a neutral third party. And for the first time, Smita begins to question that. Um, and she wonders if the rules that were invented in the 20th century, mostly by, let's face it, white males of privilege who used to be editors of big um, media empires, you know, do those rules really have any uh, um, application to a poor country, especially when you're telling the story of a marginalized woman? like Mina, you know, um, and and then she begins to muse, frankly, even on the morality of like this one size fits all uh, kind of thinking, 
right? Uh, I was a Neiman fellow at Harvard many, many years ago, and we had two groups. Um, you know, one was the American journalists, one, the others were the international fellows. And there was a lot of uh, good natured conflict and debate between the two groups where all the American journalists, of which I was one, you know, all said, yeah, 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 we have no other recourse. Objectivity is the way to go. And then we had international fellows from all around the world, uh, some of whom had covered war zones, you know, civil wars, um, you name it. And they were like, this is BS, you know, because there are, you know, there is a kind of morality involved in not choosing sides sometimes is not the moral thing to do. And, and frankly, even at the end of that year, I had never quite resolved this for myself, you know? Yeah, I was going to um, ask you, where did you come down yeah. on that? I mean, I, I it's, don't also, know, you it's know? also a discussion about power. And that comes up in the book. What was rattling through my mind is just who has power and right. who gets to enforce tradition and whose tradition gets to be sustained. The idea of the musing of what is objective and what role does the storyteller tell? I think a lot has changed uh, it, even in the last 10 years and particularly right. around conflicts in which people are operating on information that's not accurate. So this debate, this question of what and how the reporter, what and how the storyteller gives that information is not, it's not just so simple as answering that, like, who, what, where, when. No, it's true. It's true. And then, you know, if you really want to complicate the issue even more, as there are scenes in the novel where Smita is accompanied by a non-journalist, you know, a friend's friend, Mohan, who is not a journalist who doesn't abide or even know any of these rules of journalism. And Mohan just operates as any decent human being would. You know, when they go to visit Mina and her mother-in-law, he just thinks, oh my God, if I could just carry a bag of rice and dal and, and sugar to these poor people's mm-hmm. home, it could sustain them for a month, you know, because these people have nothing of their own. And Smita is appalled and says, no, 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 we don't pay for stories. You know, we can't do things like that. And Mohan really doesn't understand, my God, if you can alleviate somebody's suffering, you know, with the flick of a wrist, how monstrous not to do that, right? So you can hopefully see it from both their points of view. Mm This story centers on faith, the dynamics between Muslims and Hindus, and particularly Muslim-Hindu marriages. What what drew you to that? In some ways, it seems to be certainly the, the main narrative of modern India. I wish it weren't, but as you mentioned, you know, partition uh, earlier, I mean, you know, the, the whole birth of modern India, uh, independent India, was so tainted by this cleaving of the nation into India and Pakistan along religious lines. And it's certainly, you know, it's a sad history that just people seem hell-bent on repeating over and over and over again. So there was no escaping that. I mean, this honor killing that's at the center of the novel certainly happens because of religious differences and religious misunderstandings. But 
I personally, you asked me what life was like when I lived in India, and I think I've described it to you that it was a good, you know, time, mostly because at least in Bombay, we certainly saw ourselves as very secular minded people and different groups got along. And I left in the early 80s, um, but in the early 1990s, so a good 10 years after I had left, you know, all these troubles sort of came to Bombay. Uh, what came to be known as the Bombay riots happened. And even though I was 10,000 miles away, I still had family in India, and it was a very tense time. We were not Hindu. We were not Muslim. And, and we were not targets of these riots. But I personally felt targeted in the sense that the city that I had grown up in, that I had admired and loved so much, that I had foolishly, as it turned out, believed was somehow immune to all this religious strife that went on in the rest of the country, had fallen prey to all of that. And, you know, like the old uh, song goes, my city was gone. You know, I remember that line just from the song going through my head over and over again. My city is gone. During all that time, my father uh, told me the story that I had never forgotten, that had made a deep impression on me and also gave me a kind of working definition of the word honor and what it meant to be an honorable person. And the story was that uh, when the riots were going on, one of our Muslim neighbors knocked on the door and said they planned to leave town for a few weeks, you know, until things settled down. And he had a bag of jewelry and, you know, whatever assets they had. And he said, will you keep this for me mm. for safekeeping, mm. you know, because we don't want to travel right. with all this. Right. It's too risky. My father led him into the house, uh, opened his wardrobe, and he had a safe uh, inside it. And he cleared out all of his stuff, whatever papers or whatever he kept at home, he cleared all that out. He told the neighbor to put his stuff um, directly in there himself. He locked the safe and he gave the key of the safe to the neighbor and said, whenever you're ready, you come back, you open it yourself so that you know nothing is missing and you take it back. And for my dad, this was just like you know, he probably had 15 seconds to think all this through. So it was just second nature to him to have done this. And when he told me the story, too, it was like, it wasn't like, hey, look at me, I'm such a nice guy. It was just like, yeah, yeah, so this happened, you know. But I remember just being filled with love and admiration for him, you know, thinking, how is it that even in a moment of crisis, he can think that clearly and frankly, that decently about what somebody else might be thinking or feeling, you know? Mm. And so all these things probably remained in some crevice of my brain for <laughs> all these decades, you know? And when I wrote Nina's story, it all just came back. Yeah. The the relationship between honor and tradition is something you wrestle with in mm -hmm. in the in all of these stories. And it is it's a story about Mina's attempt to survive. I mean, she's victimized, but she also seeks to fight back. And you feel this survivor spirit in her as the way you write her character and the way that she's seeking justice in the courts. Right. The the, the legal system 
is implicated. The judicial system is implicated. This is not just a story about uh, women and about love. This is also a story about how honor and tradition impacts and influences the systems in our society and the systems in a society that has the kind of story that India does. Right. And so I I am curious about what what inspired you to kind of develop this relationship between Mina and Smita, where on the surface, Mina is this woman who, as you said, doesn't have the letters. She's not, she doesn't have the title. But, Correct. But as I was reading it, it at times felt like Smita, who did have the letters, who had the title, who had the expense account and the, and was empowered to be the storyteller. Right. That she was learning from Mina. Absolutely. I'm so happy to hear you say that because that's exactly what I was trying to do. You know, I'm so tired of narratives where, you know, the rich lady, the educated lady, the powerful lady or man, you know, swoops into a situation and like it becomes a story about uplift and stuff like that. When I think, frankly, just just based on my observations of life in India, you know, it's really the poor who carry the rest of us on their backs. You know, it's the silent majority who pave the way and do so much more of the hard work and the heavy lifting. And, you know, Smita is the victim of a childhood trauma. And as is true for many people who have been traumatized early in life, uh, she bears scars of that. You know, she literally comes to India with a lot of baggage. And, Mina, on the other hand, has so little to call her own. And yet she and her husband both, Abdul too, they have a spark in them that if I was a religious person, I would almost call it a divine spark, Mm. you know. But to me, this is one of the most endearing and mysterious things about human beings is why in every society, in every period in history, there is a small percentage of people who pave the way for the rest of us. And where that courage comes from, where that inspiration comes from, where that bravery comes from, we don't know. I mean, we know some of their names, right? We know the name Rosa Parks, you know? But how did Rosa Parks actually become Rosa Parks? Mm -hmm. I mean, how did MLK, for heaven's sake, become MLK, you know? Wasn't he scared? Wasn't he confused? He was just an ordinary pastor. You know, MLK was 39 years old when he died. So he was a young man, but he founded a movement, or at least he led a movement. And perhaps Mina, you know, she's certainly never going to be a household name. She's not a historic figure. But all she does is claim her right to love, which seems like, the most ordinary thing in the world, but in certain societies, it ends up being the most taboo thing in the world. And she, and she breaks those taboos and she doesn't do it in this aggressive, loud, defiant way. She does it simply by doing it, you know, and it's that daily everyday heroism that affects me so deeply. And I find it so much more meaningful and grand 
than these bigger gestures of what it means to be a hero and, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm. Smita might be our guide through this maze that is India, but Meena is the heart of the book. Yeah. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. My guest this week is bestselling author Triti Umargar. Her latest book, Honor, was released in January 2022. When we come back from the break, Umargar talks about the lessons and struggles in India and why she sees these challenges as universal. This book is set in India and it's talking about a certain set of circumstances. But these are issues that are not unique to any one place on earth. We'll be back after this short break. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. If you're just joining, this week my guest is bestselling author Triti Umragar. Her eighth novel, Honor, hit bookshelves in January. The story challenges the image of a modern India, taking readers into the struggle of a young woman who survives a brutal attack motivated by religious hatred. According to the Pew Research Center, an overwhelming majority of Indians are opposed to interfaith marriage. As of this recording, 28 states in India have adopted laws that seek to outlaw Muslim men from marrying Hindu women. Supporters say the laws are necessary to prevent religious coercion. Critics say the laws reflect a growth in anti-Muslim sentiment. As we get back to the conversation, Umargar reflects on this dimension of the story and how she comes to telling it as herself a member of a small religious community. You know, I, I I wanted to I wanted to say that the other dynamic, the other 
there was a long history of Muslim-Hindu relationships prior to uh, partition. My grandmother, I remember once telling me... um, in the in the 1980s, that she remembered growing up in northern India, uh, Gurdaspur, and she would tell me that like her neighbors were of different religions, like different, there were different right. religious traditions in her community, and it wasn't a big. We were neighbors. Right. We fed each other. Right. I just remember her saying, "We were neighbors. We fed each other." And in the 1980s, I remember her dismay because we were watching the the rise of all kinds of what I would call like religious right, um, ethno religious nationalism in right. lots of parts of the world, including South Asia. And I remember asking her because I was inquisitive, and my dad was like, "Stop bugging your grandmother." And she would say, <laughs> and she would say, she was very sweet. She would say. In her Punjabi, she would say, you know, you're like a bird. You just don't Aww. stop. You want to keep singing. Aww. And you want to so hear this. Sweet. You want to hear this song. You want to hear this. You want to hear this. And I, mm. I, I, I want to ask you about your exposure to Hindu-Muslim tensions, to Hindu-Muslim marriages and families, where the courage to love someone who your family rejects, where does that storyline come from? Yeah, so, you know... The Parsis uh, are a pretty westernized and mostly cosmopolitan um, community. And again, we are so few in numbers that we have never been a threat to anybody. I mean, that's almost like a joke, you know. So I certainly know people. Um, you know, I have a Parsi relative um, who's married to a Muslim guy. I'm sure at some point there might have been a tad bit of... Um, you know, parents saying, oh, wouldn't you rather marry somebody within the community? Um, you know, life will be easier. I mean, that's something you heard, you know, that if you marry somebody from your own religion, you can talk in a kind of shorthand, you right. know, that you don't have to, um, you know, navigate other uh, traditions and customs and stuff like that. But, um, you know, when I was in college, I was very good friends with this couple. I mean, they were like our heroes almost she is hindu he is muslim and they fell in love in college and and married and yeah i'm sure there was some uh cribbing on the part of the parents early on you know and then the two families met one another and they all came from the upper middle class they came from the same social class they all lived in an affluent part of town and so the class similarities trumped the religious differences and They've been happily married ever since, and, you know, they're fine. They've raised two beautiful boys, and they're fine. But again, you know, I'm telling you a couple of instances in a country of more than a billion people, mm-hmm. privileged people, you know, educated people, um, people who were not fanatics in one one direction or the other, you know, um, that may not, unfortunately, be most people's experiences. I mean, Hindu culture, as you know, they don't want people to sort of marry from one caste to another, let alone, you know, making the leap to marry somebody in a different uh, religion altogether. I think turning a blind eye to these issues doesn't make them disappear. Um, I, I just feel like the best thing to do with problems, and this is not just true in the Indian context, it's certainly true here too, is to just face up to reality. And then say, if this is a reality that I'm ashamed of, then let's not blame the media for reporting on that reality. Let's not blame a novelist for writing a book about that reality. Let's work to change the reality, Mm. you know? 
this is a story about relationships and about women, but it is also much bigger than that. It's, uh, I think, a story also about what can happen uh, when religious identity and religious affiliation meet up against all these other political um, and social forces and the suffering that can can flow from that. Well, and, and you know, I mean, look, I'm a firm believer that once a book is out in the world, it no longer belongs to the author, or it certainly doesn't exclusively belong to the author. You know, it belongs as much to the reader, because as we all know, you and I can read exactly the same words on a page, and mm-hmm. we will bring our entire lives to bear on how we read and what we read, and we will we will take a different meaning uh, away from from those words on a page. So, but having said that, if if as the writer, I have any hope or any dream for how I would, you know, in an ideal world, like my readers to read my words, is to completely understand that yes, this book is set in India and it's talking about a s- certain set of circumstances, but. But these are issues that are not unique to any one place on earth, you know, that in this country, too, we are very much um, fighting the same forces of ignorance, of, of small mindedness, of, of this desire to scapegoat entire communities or individuals to, you know, to always sort of otherize people who might look different than us Um these these are trend lines that unfortunately flow through many many nations, right? Yeah. Um, so, so I think a certain amount of humility, a certain amount of modesty. I mean, I would hate it if if an American reader read my book and sort of pointed fingers and said, "My God, look how people live over there." Mm-hmm. There is a lot of work to be done everywhere, and the misogyny and the afflictions that flow from patriarchy are not limited to one nation or one right, region right. Of, of even this because, country. Yeah, Because patriarchy is not limited to any one region, right? And, and it's, this it's, is about patriarchy, too. I mean, it's the, the patriarchy is indicted here as well. Oh, uh, very much so. Yeah. Very much so. The whole notion of honor killings is so wrapped up in sexuality and women's bodies um, that, to me, I don't even know how to tease those threads out. And, you know, it always seems to be somebody saying, mostly a male figure saying, you as a woman are not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to fall in love with this particular person. You're not allowed to fall in love at all. You you should be listening to your fathers and your brothers. So w- what is that if not patriarchy? Mm-hmm. What do you think someone needs to know when they sit down to read this book? Ultimately, honor is a love story, or it's several love stories. You certainly learn about Mina's very tenuous but very charming um, romance with her husband, you know, the courtship. Um, there is another love story um, between two individuals in the book. And last but not least, it's it's a love story between a woman who comes to India thinking, you know, she knows everything that's wrong with the country, but she doesn't have the maturity when she arrives to know everything that's right with the country. And ultimately, it's a forward-looking novel, and it leaves you with a glimmer of hope. 
It tells you that individuals do have agency and can make a difference in not just their own lives, but in the lives of others. Triti Umargar, the best-selling author of 10 novels, including her latest, Honor, and two children's picture books. She is a distinguished university professor of English at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. That's all for this week's show. If you're interested in learning more about our guest, head over to this week's episode page on our website at interfaithradio.org. While you're there, learn about us, read the show notes, sign up for our newsletter, and explore the archives. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or really the podcaster of your choice. Just search Interfaith Voices. And while you're there, help us out. Leave a rating and a review. It helps others find us. This week's episode was produced by Kevin McCarthy. A special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, for her vision and MC Yogi for our theme music. Additional music by Blue Dot Sessions and Audio Binger. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Wherever you are, I hope you are well. I hope you stay connected and I'll see you next week.